We're going to be beginning a new series through the book of Titus uh, for this summer, a book that I trust will be relevant to us here at Grace Fellowship uh, in this season we're in. Um, I'm looking forward to diving into it with you. We'll be looking tonight at the first four verses, this opening of this letter of Paul to Titus, Titus 1, 1 to 4. And uh, we'll spend some extra time tonight just looking at sort of some introductory matters, the context of the book. So uh, we'll spend some extra time on that. Titus 1, 1 to 4. This is God's holy and errant word. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. May the Lord, may the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of his word. This is the opening to the book of Titus. Uh, we recently, in the last year, we finished a series through the book of Acts. And if you remember, the book of Acts ends on sort of a cliffhanger. It ends on this note of Paul's in prison awaiting trials. And you might wonder, like, what happens? How does the story continue if Paul's just waiting here in prison? And uh, the book of Titus, it actually gives us a bit of an answer to what Paul did after that time. And as it turns out, Paul gets out of prison and he goes on what some call the fourth missionary journey. And one of the places he ends up ministering is on the island of Crete, which is a large island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, sort of halfway between Rome and uh, Jerusalem. It's a prominent place. And Paul and his buddy Titus are doing missions work there, seeking to help the church. We're not sure exactly how the church began. We know that there was people from Crete um, assembled on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. So perhaps uh, some people when Peter was preaching were converted and started a church on Crete. Or maybe Paul just went there and he started the work right from scratch. Either way, Paul and Titus are on Crete doing missions work. But as is Paul's way, he doesn't stay in any place too long. He's, he's a foundation layer. He lays the foundation, preaches the gospel, and heads off somewhere else. But he knows that there's still work to do in the church. And that's why he's written this book. And he's written it to Titus, who's going to be the guy to build on Paul's foundation. And if you look at verse 5 in Titus 1, it says that, uh, this is Paul speaking, he says, This is why I left you in Crete. Okay, which implies Paul was there with Titus and Crete. He says, this is why I left you, so that you might put what remained into order. The, the work of Paul's ministry that he's left undone, it's Titus's job to continue the work, to build on the foundation that Paul's laid. And so who's this Titus character? Um, I think I was often confused growing up uh, in who Titus was. I thought that he was kind of like the local pastor in Crete, that's kind of where he grew up, and so it's kind of his job to help build up the church. But, but that's not the case. Titus has been a companion with Paul on a lot of Paul's missionary journeys. Uh, Paul found Titus as a young guy, and uh, was, 
Titus was probably converted under Paul's ministry. Uh, he calls him his true child in the faith in verse 4. And uh, Titus actually became a really important guy. He kind of became famous when there was a controversy about how much of the law did the Gentile church need to keep. And Paul points out in Galatians that he says, uh, I didn't circumcise Titus. And this is a big deal because that's him making a statement that the Gentiles don't need to keep these Jewish rituals. And so Titus kind of became this test case. Uh, It culminated in that council in Jerusalem, which determined that the Gentiles indeed did not need to keep uh, the Jewish law. And so Titus was a big part of this, actually. And he uh, is also a big part of Paul's ministry to Corinth. He's, in 2 Corinthians, he's the main emissary that Paul sends out to fix up a lot of the problems in Corinth. So Paul really trusts Titus. He sent him to Corinth, and he's going to leave him now in Crete to, to, to put together the, the, the pieces Paul's left there. But even this is meant to be a temporary measure. At the end of the book, in uh, chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, uh, But when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, Titus, that is, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. For I've decided to spend the winter there. So he likes Titus so much, he's like, hey, you're going to keep doing the work here in Crete, but I'm going to send another guy to replace you so that you can come help me out again, because you're really valuable to me in the ministry. And so in a sense, we can think of the book of Titus as the first step in Paul's gospel succession plan. How is the work of gospel ministry going to continue in Crete once the founding is sort of completed? And part of this is going to result, the end of this is going to be Titus appointing local church leadership. He's going to be called to appoint elders that will then be able to carry on uh, this church in perpetuity, to keep it going in a gospel succession. And so I think that's why this, I think this is really cool for us at Grace Fellowship. As a church that we've been here over a year, foundations established, and we might be wondering, yes, we, we've got a gospel foundation. What should we think about doing next? Where should we put our efforts? Where should we put our endeavors? Maybe, like, what threats do we need to be aware of? What, what things should we, would, should we be watching out for as a young church? And I think a lot of these questions will be things that we'll see here in the book of Titus. Because in many ways, uh, we, we deal with the same sorts of things that these early believers did as well. And so just, uh, I want, want to set a little bit about what, what's, what were the issues in Crete right now? What, what were the big things Titus was fighting against? And what can we learn from this? Well, the, the big problem in Crete, the reason Titus was going to have his work cut out for him, is that there was false teachers. Always a problem, right? Nobody likes having to deal with false teachers. Uh, and these false teachers were what, what have been called Judaizers. We see these guys pop up in the Galatian church, in the Ephesian church. And they're basically teaching that, You know, you do need to keep the Jewish laws and rituals. This thing that's already been determined they didn't have to do, they're like, no, you need to do all this Jewish ceremony. So very external-oriented, very law-oriented, legalistic, you could say. But at the same time, they were also really worldly. You see, because kind of what happens is when you externalize your religion, then you're, you're good with God just by checking the boxes. And then from there, you just kind of live how you want. So they were very immoral. And they, they promoted a lifestyle of just laxity in the things of God. And this went right along with the culture of Crete, which was terribly immoral, filled with deceit, with drunkenness, with sexual immorality. And so 
they were just playing right into the hands of what people might have wanted to hear in this culture. And so Titus is, is going up against these false leaders. And so the two main teachings that Titus needs to really get going in this church, this, the main two parts of this work, uh, are found in kind of two main uh, couples of words that pop up throughout this letter. The first is sound doctrine. Titus is there to establish a foundation of sound teaching, sound gospel teaching. And from there, the other big phrase in the book is good works, is that from this foundation of sound gospel basis, he will promote good works, a lifestyle of godliness, a lifestyle that's beneficial for families and communities. This is Titus's work here in brief. And Titus, it's going to be a bit of a leadership struggle. Titus is going to be having to teach and declare and exhort and rebuke while these other teachers are kind of vying for authority. And so now when we come and see this introduction to the letter, we see this sort of struggle playing out. It's a struggle of authority. And Paul is very concerned in this opening to establish his authority, the authority of his gospel ministry, and how Titus is going to be carrying out and working on the authority of Paul's ministry, the, the sort of authority that these Jewish false teachers don't have. And this is where it hits us, is that there's always this question of who are you going to listen to? Whose words carry the most weight in your life? Whose thoughts do you heed? Whose way of life will you follow? Whose opinions do you hold most dear? Is it, the, is it just that of anyone who asserts themselves as an authority on any matter? Or is it the authority of God, seen in the authority of his word, ministered through the authority of a commissioned, uh, word-based ministry? The authority has to come from the word of God, but especially the word of God preached and ministered in gospel community. And that's what we're going to see in this opening. We're going to look at Paul's ministry, the authority of his gospel ministry. And we'll look at this under the headings of the minister, the mission, and the message. We're looking at an authoritative gospel ministry. The minister, the mission, and the message. So first, the minister. Look at verse 1 there. Paul begins saying, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Two roles here. Servant of God, apostle of Jesus Christ. And right off the bat, Paul's pointing to his authority. And first, he, he kind of starts off humbly. I'm a servant of God. That means... I'm not here to promote my own will, my own ways, my own ideas. I'm here, I've been ministering in Crete as one who's trying to serve God, God's purposes. But secondly, I'm also an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the word apostle just simply means a, a witness, but it's used more specifically in the New Testament to refer to men who were specifically commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus to carry on an authoritative work in the church. If, if you remember, Paul, uh, on the road to Damascus, he actually sees a vision of the risen Christ who commissions him to do gospel work. So Paul is asserting his authority as an apostle. And we, and we might have noticed a few weeks ago in Philippians, he doesn't do that. The Philippian church wasn't really struggling to accept Paul as an apostle. They, they recognize that. But here he says, I'm an apostle. Therefore, that is, I'm a foundation builder. I have a commission from Christ. This ministry is authoritative and ought to be listened to. That's Paul the minister. Second, let's see, uh, what's Paul's mission? You might wonder, okay, Paul, you're an apostle. What's your goal? What sort of things are you working towards in Crete? 
And here he lays it out, starting halfway through verse 1. He says, That I'm an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. Paul's saying, what I'm about is serving to build, to increase, and to further the faith of God's elect people. And he's not meaning God's elect as in like the the invisible uh, ones that God knows he's chosen for salvation, but often the term the elect, God's chosen, can just refer to the church as a whole. We are God's chosen people. And so he's saying, I want to see the faith of the church, the faith of God's people, furthered. I want to see their faith furthered. And here's what this looks like. Growth in faith. It's going to look like knowing the truth in a way that produces godliness and ends in the hope of eternal life. That's what it's all about. He says it's the knowledge of the truth. This isn't just knowledge of any truth, but... It's specifically the knowledge of gospel truth, the truth about Jesus, who he is, what he did. And this is that same idea as what we discussed earlier as sound doctrine. This this important idea that everything is based on sound doctrine, the truths of the gospel. And this sound doctrine produces godliness. Remember those false teachers? Their doctrine did not produce godliness. It produced worldliness. But sound doctrine, and uh, the word sound is a medical term. Like you might say someone is sound in mind and body. It's that kind of sound. And this sound or healthy doctrine, you could say, produces healthy living, godliness. And so, okay, so let's think about food for a sec. Uh, What's a healthy doctrine of food? You know, uh, people have different opinions on what's what's a healthy doctrine of food. What sort of food should we be eating? But I think we can agree that... We know that certain types of foods produce certain health consequences. So if you're eating, intaking healthy food, you should be uh, healthy in body such that you have vigor, you have energy, you have strength, and you're feeling good. Whereas if you had an unhealthy doctrine of food, and and let's just be extreme, let's say that your doctrine of food was uh, just drinking motor oil or something similarly silly, uh, you would know that That unhealthy doctrine of food will produce very unhealthy consequences in your body, right? You'll probably be feeling terrible and will not be useful or fit for much at all. And this is the same connection between healthy doctrine and healthy living, is that when your doctrine of the gospel and the way of life is right, it's going to produce life-giving effects in the body. And that's one test of true doctrine from false, is the extent to which it produces godliness and good works in our life. So we want to be a people who care about healthy doctrine that produces godly living. Because this is good, it's healthy for our life now, but not just now, this is healthy for eternity. Paul says that if it was just for your life now, uh, how would Paul be convinced to undergo all his persecutions and suffering? But he says this is in hope of eternal life. In hope of eternal life. That's the end of Paul's ministry. And seeking to see people grow in faith, in knowing the truth and godliness, that they might attain those riches of the hope of eternal life. And e- eternal life, you know, that's an amazing gift. And what is it? We see it in the name. It's eternal. That is, that, that's the quantity. It's going on forever. And it's life. That's the quality. It's not just mere existence, but life in Scripture is, is a fullness, an exuberance, a joy. And eternal life, actually, if you know Christ, it starts now. 
John 17 verse 3 says that this is eternal life, that they know you and the Jesus whom you've sent. Eternal life begins now in knowing Jesus, and the fullness of that, uh, no, no one can fathom what that'll be like in eternity. This is Paul's mission. As a minister of God, this is his mission to see the furthering of the faith of God's people, that is, them knowing the truth, knowing the gospel, and living out of the gospel unto eternity. Paul the minister, that's his mission. And how did Paul go about accomplishing this gospel mission? What was his method? What was his strategy for seeing this happen? Well, we'll see this as we look at the message. And it was a message that he proclaimed. That is, Paul's way of accomplishing his mission was through preaching. Preaching, that's what he says in verse 2 to 3. He says that I'm doing this in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of our God and Savior. So Paul's saying here that this plan of faith in Christ, eternal life, this was God's plan from before time began. And throughout the Old Testament, we see this plan of God, it's, it's veiled. It's, it's dim, it's in types and in shadows. It's, it's as if kind of, you know, the Jews were kind of walking around, like if you know, if you've ever kind of tried to sneak into the kitchen at night in the dark and you're maybe kind of bumping into things. You can feel your way around, you kind of know what's there, but it's dark. But he says, at the proper time, God manifested his word. That is, at the proper time, or as Galatians 4 would say, at just the right time, God turned on the lights. And whoa, in Jesus, it all becomes clear. These sacrifices, this temple, wow, this is clear in Jesus. How we become right with God. How we know God through his son. And this word of Christ... Christ is the manifestation of God's, on earth, of God's truth. This message has been entrusted to Paul and a message that he preaches in the hope of eternal life. And Paul sees this as his authoritative commission from Christ to preach the word about Christ for the faith of God's people. This is his authoritative gospel ministry. He was commissioned by Christ to preach a message about Christ to see a people gathered to worship and serve Christ. And what a contrast between the false teachers that are just kind of peddling their own message, their own cultural ideas. Paul is speaking the message that he got from Jesus about the Son of God, the message that leads to eternal life. What a difference. And uh, I think we can, we can think of this difference and say, if we think of this illustration, if you're... Uh, Maybe at work, maybe in college or high school, if you're doing like a group project, and it seems often in group projects that the teacher's instructions are often not as clear as they should have been. And so you're there with your group and you're wondering, okay, what, what did they want? What should we be doing here? Uh, what's the best way to go about accomplishing this mission? And in inevitably, someone or two will rise up and kind of start taking leadership and saying, well, uh, why don't we do this? Um, maybe like I've had this teacher before, so uh, maybe we should go this direction and you do this and you do this. But it just is kind of like their own opinions and they just kind of want to be the leader. Um, I can't say that I haven't fallen into that once or twice myself in my college days. Uh, but it's, it's like this. Imagine then you're in this group 
And then you get called into the teacher's office, and the teacher says, hey, I know some things haven't been as clear as they should be, but here, I'm telling you, this is exactly what I want you to do. This is how I want you guys to accomplish this project. Here's the details. Now, can you please go and pass this on to the others? And now when that person comes back to the group, they ought to be listened to more than anyone else, even the most confident, even the smartest, because they're coming with a message straight from the authority themselves with a commission from that person to bring that message to bear. Okay, and this is the difference between Paul and the false teachers. Paul's been commissioned by Christ to speak this message. Therefore, he comes with the authority of the Lord. And therefore, he deserves to be listened to and not the voices of the false teachers. As confident as they may be, as smart as they may seem. And I think that this hits us. Uh, It comes to us in the sense of, we live in a world with so many voices, so many opinions, so much empty talk. We see it everywhere. And in a weird way, it feels like there's more information available than ever before, but it's harder to access the truth, it seems. One person says one thing, someone shares a counter-article, and then a counter-article to the counter-article, and we're just left wondering, who do I believe? Who's authoritative in any of this? Who has the right to say, you should listen to me? And we can pretty easily, and I see this in myself too, be taken in by just people who set themselves up as an authority. And we get tempted to follow these self-proclaimed authorities in the way of life they're calling us to, in the way of thinking they're calling us to. And so I think we should ask ourselves, um, do we give too much authority to say our favorite talk radio hosts or podcasters or college professors, the social psychologists, the best scientists, the biggest politicians. If we set up any of these voices as authoritative, we're missing the source of true authority, which is not in expertise, it's not in position, but the authority to speak in a way that should command us how to believe and behave is only the authority of the Lord God. The authority of God, which has been put into his word. This is the voice we should be listening to above all others. Our text says that this comes from the God who cannot lie. The sum of God's word is truth. And so, above all, all these things, we should be seeking to hear the truth that's found in God's word and interpret everything else through that, to hold that up as our highest standard, our highest aim, the thing we spend our most time investing into knowing and understanding. And I think maybe it's just as as an extra thought, um, I think we should be careful to put more weight on the opinions of unbelievers who seem to tell us the things we want to hear than we do in giving, um, we should give much more of our attention to the opinions and teachings of God's ministers who have been tested and commissioned in order to speak and explain the truth of the Bible. Often I find uh, people seem to give much more weight to the words of secular commentators than gospel ministers and writers. We want to be a people that care to see everything in our culture, everything in our lives filtered through the word of God. Because that's where the authority is. That's where the authority is found. And really, uh, what are we doing here? 
gathered together. I was telling Julie this afternoon, just reflecting on how weird is it that you would gather here this morning, this evening, to hear a guy talk for 30 minutes about one paragraph of a 2,000-year-old Middle Eastern letter. That's pretty weird. That kind of defies explanation. Why would uh, these 2,000-year-old Middle Eastern letters and ideas have such weight that we would actually gather to want to hear them? It's because they come with the authority of the Word of God. And so when we're gathering here, we're not just gathering um, for niceties or things. We're gathering to hear the voice of God. We don't gather to listen to people. We only listen to people to the extent that they help unfold and reveal what's already in the Word of God. So we come to church with our Bibles. We come to church to look into the Word of God, to say, God, expose me. God, teach me. God, guide me. God, lead me in your ways, because I know that you are the sum of truth. And life is confusing. It's hard to know what to think about a lot of things. But the guidance, the, the paradigms, that we need to think through are found in the word of God. And this is the authority that we see in Paul's ministry. The authority of the word of God as opposed to the false teachers. And as he's going to set Titus up to continue this uh, ministry, he's sending Titus out under this same banner of authority. And he says in verse 4 that he's writing to Titus, my true child in a common faith. He says, grace and peace from God the Father And Christ Jesus, our Savior. Paul's not actually writing just to Titus. He's writing to the whole church. But he specifically addresses Titus that they would know that Titus is the one Paul wants to continue this gospel work. And it's going to be hard for Titus. It's going to be tough slogging. And what an encouragement to one in that position than just to be reminded that we have grace and peace through Jesus. And yes, this is, this is a normal, customary greeting. Paul's doing his usual thing, greeting. But there, there's something more here. You remember, this is, even though it's a greeting, it's a, it brings to our remembrance that it's only through the grace of Jesus that we find peace with God, the Heavenly Father. Reconciliation. And Titus is going to have to bring this to remembrance all the time as he's laboring, as he's working, to just remind himself again and again that I've been given peace with my Heavenly Father through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he continues this ministry, this gospel succession, and it did. It went from Paul to Titus. It went from Titus to the elders. And for the last 2,000 years, this gospel ministry, the authority of the ministry of God's word, has gone down from generation to generation, and it's come to us. All this time later, Because the authority of God is recognized in his word. And so we're invited to receive this ministry. As we were just saying, we need to be people that will heed the word of God. That submit to the word of God. That love the word of God. We're called to receive this gospel ministry. But we're also called to participate in this gospel ministry. And so just just a concluding application. um, To remind us that Paul wasn't the only servant of God. Every true believer is called to be a servant of God. We, none of us serve God as apostles, but we serve God in our respective positions. As friends, as family members, as co-workers, as students, teachers, whatever the case may be, we're called to serve God in that role. And in whatever roles you have in your life, there's a level of influence you exert on those around you. And you could call that your ministry. 
people that you have the ability to influence and serve. And I just wanted to remind us that our service to others, we want to have the same goal and mindset that Paul had, where we can say, really, everything I'm doing in my family, my main goal in my friend group, my main goal as a member of Grace Fellowship is to see the saints of God further and progress, progress in their faith, as we heard this morning. Paul said, everything I'm doing is for your progress and joy in the faith. And wouldn't that be our heart for everyone that we have the ability to influence? To influence them to know more the truth of God, to grow more in godliness, that they might end with the hope of eternal life. This is an amazing ministry to get to be a part of. And we can only minister this way because we've received from the greatest minister. Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve. He came to minister to people, to wash feet, to lay down his life. And he came as a minister with a mission, to rescue and ransom and redeem a bride, to purchase a people for himself. And so he came declaring a message, the message of the kingdom, that he, through his death and resurrection, will defeat the powers of sin and death and have a kingdom of light, a kingdom that stretches into eternity, all at the cost of his own blood. And so we receive this ministry as the ministry of Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, who gave himself to redeem a people, to buy a people, a people zealous for good works, a people who love one another and love God above all. This is the ministry that's come to us with the authority of the word of God. So let's respect the word of God, let's receive it, but then let's participate in it as we can. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that the ministry of your word has come even to us, that we've been privileged to hear your word, to have your word proclaimed to us even this very day. And Lord, we ask that your word would go deeper and deeper into our hearts and transform us completely, that we would more and more submit to you, that we would have ears to hear your message more than any other in this world. And that you will grant us grace to minister accordingly, to seek to use every gift you've given us, every resource, to see your people gathered in, to see the lost be found, and to see our brothers and sisters grow in the faith. Would you do that work among us? Even this week, God, grant us that vision that we want to see the gospel advance and it do so under the authority of the word of God. Help us, Lord, to love your word. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name. All God's people say, amen. Let's stand as we close and sing uh, this song, Union with Thee, a song that just talks about that history of salvation from the grace of the Father, the work of Christ, the work of the Spirit. And I just point your attention to verse 4, when it's going to come up and say, filled with the Spirit, we're led by the word. Cross before crown is our road and reward. It's the Spirit and the word. God's been so gracious to give them to us. So let's stand and sing, Union with Thee. <laughs>